It's a hard day's night for us. Yeah, it is. It's a hard day's night Night for for us. us. Dead Beetle. 1877 hard night. Dead (laughs) Beetle. Welcome back to Bulb Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky. My guest names are Sam and Leon. And uh, this is, I believe, part seven, maybe part eight of our ongoing series in which we are gro- going chronologically through the career of the Beatles, uh, trying to gather all the c- clues and just getting closer every episode to solving their riddle for teens. Yeah, that's that sums it up. How are we at like episode ten and we haven't even hit the drugs yet? Uh well I think I think episode nine is probably where we'll hit the drugs, not to <laughs> not to give it away, but um you know, we gotta be thorough. We gotta look into every nook and cranny, we gotta strain each muscle and sinew. Straining <laughs> each muscle and sinew, baby. That's what it's all about. Exactly. And uh this time around we are talking about the Beatles' first foray into uh the pictures. A hard day's night. Cinema. Cinema. Kino. Kino. <laughs> it's Kino, it is. Just to get it out of the way right up top, uh, this movie is very good. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it's really good, and, you know, <laughs> we're gonna have our little laughs about it, but this is really the first thing we've covered that I'm genuinely like, yeah. <laughs> Finally. Media. It's because, you know, the Beatles' reputation is so much like, you know, they set the precedent and they developed all these things. They were the first to do it. And this is really like, I can see how this, you know, laid the groundwork for the the music film, for the music video. Like, like there's, all, there's all kinds of things to talk about here, but we're not going to touch on those. We're instead going to um, touch on the things that bring us closer to solving the riddle. Yep. So first of all, we got to wet our beaks. Excuse me? We've we've got to get our beaks wet with some riddles for teens. This beak stays dry. (laughs) These beaks don't run. (laughs) Now you'll you'll have to give me a moment at this point to find the riddles we haven't done yet. Oh, good God! Must we do riddles? Doesn't isn't the big riddle enough? (laughs) are, Are you done with the riddles at this point? The big riddle in the sky. I don't know anymore. I can't. I can't. <laughs> How about this? I don't this? know that I have riddles in me. How mm. about this? To the people listening right now, uh, you can you can send new riddles for teens <laughs> oh my God. to cast at gmail.com. And uh, please do. They all suck on the internet. <laughs> they all suck on Reader's Digest. Everybody... <laughs> Everybody listening to this, um, think of a riddle you want to send. Uh, think of it in your mind, and please please just keep it there. For just riddles a day, you can save us poor saps from having to solve more of the crappy riddles. <laughs> you can riddle us with riddles. Um, you can bullet oh. us with riddles. Oh. oh! You can riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> you can riddle Batman this, and you can send your riddles to pulpfrictioncast at gmail.com. It'll also be in the description. And um, if we get a good volume of riddles, we're going to do, like, one up top, maybe every Beatles episode. If it reaches a certain point, we might just start doing riddles at the beginning or end of every episode. Um, 
For teens. Please make sure that the difficulty level is for teens. For teens. It's so important. <laughs> we don't want any urbane or 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 esoteric riddles. We don't want riddles about the AARP or, or the Social Security Administration. Give us riddles for teens. Are teens not urbane? I was pretty urbane as a teen. I'll say that. I bet you were. I was kind of suburban. Mmm. Mm. We gotta make sure we're in the riddle mindset. Okay. Maybe just to convey to the audience how desperate the situation is. <laughs> we'll do just one or two more read- Reader's Digest riddles. We'll do the last oh, two no in the way. article. Holy shit. And from here on out, if you want riddles, you gotta send them to us. And please don't steal. Please don't steal. Original riddles only. Okay, these are the final three riddles in the Reader's Digest article. Which word is least like the others? Oh, God. (laughs) Which Mm -hmm. of these is least like the others? Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, or ninth? Fourth. And why is that? That's because of the vowels that, that are in the word fourth. The the OU? Yeah. That's all. <laughs> That's all you got? It is the only one that has those vowels in it. So um, I think that is a correct answer. Leah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you have a correct answer? I think possibly you could make an exclusionary condition for any one of these words. True, true. Such so as? I, um, no, I'm not using my brain that much right now. <laughs> I do think it's fourth. This riddle seems to be a math problem. Maybe your team will be focused on odd or even numbers or even number patterns that are more complicated. But. <laughs> I'm not. I, my I'm team not. wouldn't. <laughs> not my team. It's another case of misdirection because it's actually an English problem. <laughs> As you might have guessed from the question, which word is least like the others? <laughs> I did guess that. <laughs> All the others end in TH, whereas third begins with TH. Yeah, man. Yeah, ninth has two N's and seventh doesn't. Like, <laughs> true. Big deal. Eighth has two H's. I still think the vowels are a bigger difference. The vowels are are indeed quite a thing. Um, Reader's Digest will have you know if you're ready for more number wordplay, you can spell every number up to a thousand without this common letter. Can you guess what it is? And then um, I think it's a link oh, to another yeah. article. A girl buys a dozen eggs. And on the way home, all but seven break. How many eggs are left unbroken? Are you (laughs) kidding? (laughs) This is for teens? Aww. (laughs) It's disappointing, isn't it? That's really anticlimactic. (laughs) That's the last riddle? There's there's one more riddle after this. It's also... (laughs) I I don't want to give anything (laughs) away, but you you will be... so pathetic. Disappointed in a different way, I think. Uh, <laughs> Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest. I'd like to digest this fucking publication. How about they digest some better fucking riddles? How about they digest some of those <laughs> eggs? Oh, <laughs> God, I wish I could. <laughs> I could kill for eggs. This is another riddle where the answer is literally in the question. But. Yeah. But. Teens have to have attention to detail to solve it. Otherwise, they might skip over the pertinent info or make the mental leap to thinking seven actually broke. In that case, they'll be doing the extra work of figuring out that a dozen is twelve. <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> Hold on! 
when I do mental gymnastics to figure out <laughs> that a dozen is the number 12? Huh. I pic- you gotta picture the person approaching these little, and they're like, okay, so how many is a dozen? <laughs> <laughs> so far removed. We were disappointed because because <laughs> the answer is clearly seven. But Reader's Digest is thinking about the teen who doesn't know what the word dozen means. <laughs> the teen who is too young to know how to ask. Yeah, the teen who doesn't know how to ask, yeah. And then subtracting seven to get five, which is incorrect. So the answer is seven. I don't know if you could, if you puzzled that one out. Well, I couldn't even puzzle out what a dozen was, so... Yeah, yeah, I had trouble with that one. I thought it was like a... Like an iPod. <laughs> yeah. Here's the last riddle from the Reader's Digest article. 37 of the best riddles for teens with answers. And let's just hope and pray... That this riddle gets us in the in the riddle-solving spirit to really attack this film. A farmer has a bag of corn, a hen, uh-huh. and a fox. He has to cross a river, oh but his boat is only big enough to carry one thing with him. They stole! <laughs> they stole the... They stole the riddles for teens! How can the farmer get all three of them across the river? I like how the text of the riddle does not even... Mention which which of the two can't be paired together. Like usually, you usually you go into like the fox would eat the hen, the hen would eat the corn, yada yada. Like they just assume. I mean, teens these days they're not hanging out with foxes. They're not hanging out with hens. They're certainly not hanging out with corn. Other than that one kid, or farmers. That one kid. <laughs> yeah, the, corn, the corn child. Yeah, it has the juice. God, I'm I'm getting a, a Reader's Digest video pop up, and I'm just thinking about like the people in this video who are em- employed by Reader's Digest, <laughs> just, <laughs> oh, just sit God. on a white background. I um, this is the final and biggest challenge for your team. Okay, <laughs> that's a very bold statement. <laughs> this is the final boss of riddles for your team. You've been putting your team through all these, riddles. <laughs> and now. They're facing their biggest challenge yet. This teen who we've, who's been joining us this whole way through in spirit, like, like Eliyahu. One of the most famous uh-huh. riddles, the river crossing puzzle, in which three things have to be brought across, but in a specific order. They are hard, but they can also be fun brain twisters that give teens a sense of accomplishment when they figure them out. If they were, tr- if, if they had put any effort into this article, which you know, some SEO writer put together in like, Two hours. Two seconds flat. <laughs> they would have, like, made the specific things, like, things that a teen would relate to. They would have said, you have to get your, your, um, your iPhone, <laughs> your pride flag, and your, um, <laughs> and your Mr. Beast Burger. Your hot chip. <laughs> what did you say? Your hot chip, your phone charger. Your hot chip, your phone charger, your, your be bisexual, your Mr. Beast Burger. You have to get them all across the river. <laughs> so you have to get a fox, yeah. a farmer, and Mr. Beast across a river. Yeah, and Mr. Beast will eat the farmer. Yeah. So you've got to really think about it. The farmer takes the hen with him in the boat and leaves it on the other bank. He goes back and brings the fox back with him. He drops off the fox and then brings the hen back, then takes the corn... Uh, he, he then drops it on the first bank. I shouldn't be uh, editorializing the, the work of Reader's Digest writer Tina Donvito, <laughs> who um written for Parade Magazine, the New York Times, the Washington Post. <laughs> written what? Did Tina know 
that we've been reading this article for for years. She has a BA in English and History from Rutgers University. Tina, come on the show. <laughs> you know, address the allegations already. Won't you join us? He then returns for the last time to get the hen. For your next major challenge, only two people. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> okay, okay. I know we don't want to do riddles anymore. <laughs> for your next major challenge, only two percent of people can solve Einstein's riddle. Einstein's the Joker's trick. Okay, Einstein's riddle is is kind of a big one. Yeah, this requires you to like draw like a chart. <laughs> I'm gonna say we don't do this one. We've reached the end of, of Reader's Digest Riddles for Teens, and we've become riddle masters in the process. We have. No, but great. Here are the clues that we're going into as we look at this film. Basically, our our guiding light, our shining city on a hill, the Beatles high school song, <laughs> Quarry Men Old Before Our Birth, <laughs> Straining Each Muscle and Sinew. We're getting further and further away from, from the context of that, but that we have to strain each muscle and sinew. We're getting closer. Yeah, there's an old man that's very important to this film. True, 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 true. A very clean old man. Clean old he is man. very clean. <laughs> That's a really good bit. What that means? I'll I'll explain it, but um, it's a good bit on its own too. Um, and basically, we we've learned all these things about the Beatles' sort of criminal shenanigans, and this notion that you know they were at some point recruited by some shadowy conspiracy that involves. Uh-huh governments it involves uh tv personalities it it involves barry gordy who might be at the top a sort of gordian knot um (laughs) and uh the beatles were recruited to kill jfk Uh and um in that vacuum of because all the teens idolized jfk famously and so the beatles set up in advance to to come into america after after you know becoming big hits in in the uk they come in right after jfk dies in order to become the new hero of the teens and they have succeeded by this point so now we look at this film and there, there are still questions in the air, you know, who's really behind all this? Why the Beatles? What, like, what are they trying to say? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, go through the history and then for the movie itself, we're just going to kind of throw out what we think <laughs> and, and see where it takes us. So the practice of giving teen pop stars their own, you know, low budget, quickly produced films begins with Elvis, Bill Haley, these, these fifties teen heartthrobs. In the 60s, we see that attitude come over to the UK, but the Beatles weren't really interested in doing that kind of, like, exploitation film that's, you know... They weren't interested in just, like, making some cheap shit to pander to their audience. The first film they were offered was a British drama called The Yellow Teddy Bears, about a group of British schoolgirls who wore yellow teddy bears to announce to their peers that they'd lost their virginity. Wearing them? Wearing yellow teddy bears, yeah, like uh, uh, pins or something. I don't know. (laughs) Could wear them on their heads, maybe. But yeah, that film was released sans Beatles in uh, 63. Sans Beatles? Sans Beatles, now. Now, hold on a second. (laughs) Just one minute. Let's keep an eye on that. The first producer... To take a genuine interest in collaborating with the Beatles was Walter Shenson, 
who was famous in the UK for producing the hit Peter Sellers comedy, The Mouse That Roared. And its sequel, The Mouse on the Moon, was directed by Richard Lester. So the pitch that Shenson brought to the Beatles was that Richard Lester would direct their movie. Um, Richard Lester's from Philadelphia, shout out, moved to London. He came, became very influential directing these like British comedy stuff. His first film was another music comedy called It's Trad Dad. That's about, you know, teens getting into traditional jazz. But before that, he directed a highly influential British comedy short called The Running, Jumping and Standing Still film. The what? <laughs> the running, jumping, and standing still film. <laughs> the the quotes from the Beatles are basically like, you know, we were thinking anyone who was involved with the running, jumping, and standing still film was like, you know, a god to us. So we so we were we we were ready to do it. What the running, jumping, and standing still film. That will be the okay. running, jumping, and standing still film. Yes, starring Peter Sellers once again. What else does Peter Sellers do in this film, might yeah. I ask? Yeah, well, well, uh, he does run. And, yeah. uh, and I think he jumps, which... <laughs> That's new. Yeah, that, that, that was sort of different in, in cinema in Britain at the time. and uh, But he also stands still. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. It's, now that's no longer um, a motion picture. Now that's comedy. Yeah, it's, it's a film. Yeah, and the Beatles are big fans. Big film fans. Big film fans. Big running, jumping, and standing still heads. Um, jumping, popping, and standing still. <laughs> we jumping. <laughs> yeah, we rumping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and standing. And standing now, now, incorporating standing still into jumping, I think, would be really interesting. Good lord. Let's hold on to that in case we want to make it our clue. Back in the 50s, Richard Lester had worked with an actor named Alan Owen. That's A-L-U-N. And then Owen is spelled normal. Um, in the time since then, Owen had become a renowned playwright. He was known for his plays set in Liverpool. He was very good at picking up that Liverpudlian dialect. And so Richard Lester reached out to Owen after he learned that his first choice, Johnny Spate, was not available. Ah. Yeah. And Johnny Spate was this great, you know, British, another, like, influential figure in British comedy. He was a socialist. All his work, like, you know, sort of skewered the, like, race and class and sex sort of uh, hangups of of Britain. That's kind of cool, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But but he wasn't, he was busy. (laughs) So they got Alan Owen. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> when the film was announced in October 1963, which was, again, very shortly before JFK died, <laughs> Shenson said, quote, God. Alan Owen is going to spend a lot of time with the boys and create characters for them that reflect their own. We want to put over their nonconformist, slightly anarchist characters. We want to present their almost goon-like quality. Their almost <laughs> goon-like quality? Yeah. Almost. Not quite goon-like. <laughs> Something of a goon. A bit goonish, yeah. Goonish and ghoulish, perhaps. Mm, well, that's where Sans Beatles comes in. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's where. United Artists made a modest $500,000 investment. Uh, they actually signed a three-picture deal, but they were like, they were thinking of it like the other exploitation films. They were like, if we get an album out of this, we're going to make money anyway. Right. And part of the appeal to that was 
United Artists being another label being like, if we can get a Beatles album out, we're going to rake in big bucks <laughs> and undercut, um, God, what is it? Columbia? Uh, whatever. The, 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 the label that actually puts out Beatles albums. So like b- between that and VJ, three different record labels released Beatles albums in the span of in, like the first half of 1964. That ain't quite right somehow. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty funky. But, um, you know, when, when they're pulling one over on a major label, it's like, you can't, you, you can't uh, be too upset about it. It's sort of like how when the zombies had time of the season and it was a big, like, crossover hit in the U.S., um, the band had already broken up. So mm-hmm. two different promoter, like, touring companies, like, like put together fake zombies bands and there were two different bands touring as the zombies while the actual zombies had broken oh. up years ago. <laughs> oh. Were hmm. any of them in those bands? No, but one of the fake zombies bands included the members, the future members of ZZ Top. Oh. Oh. Yeah. We're full of surprises tonight, huh? Yeah, yeah, lots of interesting stuff. Richard Lester says that, like, pretty much from the beginning, they were, the idea was to have the Beatles play versions of themselves. Uh, they weren't actors, so, so he kind of figured that they should be put in situations they're used to, like press conferences, adulating throngs, so on. Running from police. Running, jumping, standing still. <laughs> Being and jail. all of that that was just said, that is so very accurate, including that they are not actors. There are several punchlines, like full-on punchlines of jokes in that movie that Ringo will just trip over as just sort of an inarticulate squawk. <laughs> but yeah. somehow that makes it more real. That makes it a little bit more authentic. And I, I, yeah. it becomes charming. It's a really weird movie. <laughs> really it, it, pretty ingenious stuff going on from on Richard Lester's part I think <laughs> to set up the movie so that whatever they do it basically works. Yeah. Lennon and McCartney uh were on a brief vacation in Jamaica before their US tour. So that's another thing in terms of the timeline of like October they set up the US tour and they also set up the movie. November they kill JFK. Uh-huh. In in February they visit the US and they you know have have all the adulating throngs and they're being set up as the next big thing in the US before that. Lennon and McCartney were just chilling in Jamaica for like a month before that. Good for them. Yeah. Some me time. Paul McCartney talked, like, in the recent past about, like, mutual masturbation that the Beatles did. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if that was specifically when it was. It was definitely, like, this time period. Okay. I'm I'm okay. glad we're starting to get this a time, time frame on that. Yeah, well, we gotta figure that out, of course. That fits into the riddle. Do we? Does it? <laughs> or whatever you say. <laughs> So Lennon and McCartney wrote eight songs for the film while they were on this vacation, and they just handed them off to Lester well, and Owen. they were mutually masturbating. Yeah. <laughs> they were beating the Beatles, and they handed these off to um, Lester and Owen, and were just like, figure, the, figure it out, figure out where they go in the movie. The movie started filming in March of 1964, weeks after the Beatles' first visit to the U.S. made them, like, a global phenomenon. So United Artists invested 500k in this, and suddenly they have, like... A much bigger thing than they expected on their hands. Right. The Beatles joined Actors' Equity, which is the, you know, sort of worldwide actors' union, um, the morning of the first shoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Just got their cards on the way there. The drive Just picked through. them up. 
<laughs> drive through. Because the Beatles had suddenly become big deals, the producers and the band and their management were concerned with how the boys were being portrayed throughout the process. There was a lot of micromanaging. Uh-huh. Actor Wilfred Bramble, who played uh, Paul's grandfather, was well known to British audiences as a star of the hit sitcom Steptoe and Son, which was later adapted in the U.S. as Sanford and Son. Oh, what? Yeah, he was he was the Red Fox of that show. That's crazy. It's wild, yeah, but his 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 like character archetype on that show was like dirty old man. So that is one of the reasons that they're constantly calling him a clean old man in this movie. <laughs> oh, it all makes sense though. It's all coming together. Much of the Beatles, mar- I feel like the clean old man thing that that has a riddle energy to it for sure, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's one of those little hints. So let, let's let's maybe put that in our list of clues as well. But um. Much of the Beatles' marketing at this time was focused on identifying the different personalities of the four members. Like, basically, they had put this huge marketing push behind the Beatles are coming out in America. They're a big phenomenon. The teens go crazy for them. When you hear Beatles music, you scream. And now it's like, who are they? <laughs> right. What's the actual image? Yeah. So in, in March, John puts out his first book and that sort of sets him up as like kind of, you know, a, 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 I, I think it's called in his own right, W-R-I-T-E. Oh. They're working on developing the personalities of the Beatles. I think that definitely comes through in the movie. Certainly does. It was shot in black and white for financial reasons, but also because most of the iconic images of the Beatles, like, especially for U.S. audiences at that time, were all in black and white, like the, um, the album cover they did where they were, like, half in silhouette. We talked about a little how that was, like, a thing that the label didn't want, and it was something that only, like more respected like jazz artists really did and so that kind of like improved their image that they that they went with that bold cover but also richard lester and a cinematographer had only ever shot in black and white so there were a couple reasons Uh, according to some of the sources i've seen the beatles were deliberately given mostly one-liners for dialogue to compensate for their lack of acting experience ah (laughs) that's me in this show yeah For your lack of riddle experience, the uh, the quote I have is, The fact that the Beatles were only asked to deliver short sentences was a crucial factor in enabling them to feature in a full-length film. <laughs> That's really funny. That's classic stuff. Really making no bones about it, huh? <laughs> These guys couldn't read. <laughs> couldn't read or write. Inarticulate squawking. Yeah, they're running, they're jumping. Uh, <laughs> popping. They do do some running and jumping. It's true. And standing still. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, On his earlier films, Richard Lester kind of pioneered, like, shooting with multiple cameras. That was mostly done for TV, and it still mostly is. But, like, that was used in this movie to kind of capture, like, spontaneity. Uh Uh-huh. It was only four months from when the movie started shooting to when it premiered. Oh, wow. What? Oh. Yeah, from it uh, started in March and it came out in July. Uh-huh. It was another month before the film was released in the U.S., but in the meantime, United Artists got cold feet. Fearing that American audiences wouldn't understand the Beatles' accents, they tried to convince Lester to have them dubbed over by American actors. No, <laughs> no fucking way. Can you imagine? I want to watch that movie. I want to watch that movie so bad. <laughs> I kind of need this. Like... <laughs> Can you picture it? Can we do that? 
Can we can we release a dub version of the? We should do what Richard Lester was too cowardly to do and do the American accented <laughs> version, the the oh normal talking god. version of a hard day's night. Oh my god! It's a crazy thing though, because in the UK, the the fact that the Beatles had this this kind of working class dialect, it was like 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 a lot of big music acts up to that point would like sand off the edges of their voices and sort of like trend towards this more posh kind of thing. And the Beatles like refusal to do that was sort of this it it, it gave them this sort of man of the people quality. And because <laughs> you can because the goon like appeal the the goon like the almost goon like quality. <laughs> <laughs> And United Artists was like, let's get American actors with with like mid Atlantic accents just just to make sure everything's loud and Holy clear. Shit. Insane. And what a world it would have been. A Hard Day's Night was the first movie to turn a profit before its release. The first. Yeah. The first ever. Yeah, on account of uh, because you know pre sales were not really a thing at this point, and. Mm-hmm. The thing with this movie was they didn't have pre-sales, but they were had pre-sales for albums. So the album already made money before the movie came out, which is to say they could have not even had a movie. <laughs> they could have just not. They could have just not made the movie, and it still would have made money if nobody ever saw it. My God, it's sort of diabolical. The Beatles' greatest fraud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their biggest score. Yet. <gasps> but the movie was <laughs> one of the most profitable <laughs> of all time at the time. On a budget of 500000 it took in over $14 million. Jesus. Yeah, it received two Oscar nominations, one for its script and one for its score. Uh, which is, yeah, I, I, I go for that. It's also been said that the, the film's TV debut in 1968 helped cement the band's legacy, because at that time, they were a lot more reclusive, they were a lot more sort of, they were like firebrands, they had these sort of bold social and political stances, they were like alienating the mainstream media and some of their more button-up fans. But when it aired on TV, it sort of like solidified that that early iconic teeny bopper image of the Beatles Mm-hmm. for future generations huge critical success huge commercial success regarded today as uh one of the highly influential films at first the movie was simply going to be called the beatles or beatlemania the title a hard day's night was a ringoism he, he he liked to do these these malapropisms that was one of his traits and stories differ on like who decided it should be the title? It was definitely something Ringo said, and then like John used it in a in like a a story he wrote before. But like Alan Owen kind of says that that uh, he came up with it, and the Beatles kind of say that they came up with it in terms of it being the title of the movie. So you know, despite those working titles, the word Beatles is never said in the movie. Yeah, I noticed that. That was odd. Yeah, it's like shown like 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 you know there's like the big words behind them that say beatles in one of the performances but it's like it was interesting like um it's a really funny bit when they like go to that club and and the the guy kind of gestures at the beatles behind them and they're like oh right this way but but it's one of those things where it's just like you know everyone knows the beatles no one needs to say it right and that kind of gets into how we want to look at this film as like beatles propaganda and or uh, like a statement by the Beatles, you know, providing more clues to their riddle. Mm-hmm. Right. The character of Paul's grandfather, 
mm-hmm. is interesting. Very much so. Sort of the devil. Yeah, very impish. And uh, he, he sort of embodies, I think, a lot of the things that, that we said about the Beatles in their early days in Germany. How they were <laughs> these sort of the these sort of poorly educated uh, miscreants who you know had no allegiances and would just do whatever petty crime they could they could get away with. Yeah, it's a very early Beatles crime spree movie. Yeah, especially consolidated into this this grandfather character. Um, but it's interesting because like. The Beatles get into some shenanigans, but they also sort of enable the grandfather the grandfather in a few key moments. Right. The the grandfather steals the waiter's suit to go to the like the French casino that Ringo got invited to or whatever. And then they like find the old man like in the closet at the apartment and they do a lot of good bits about that, but then they just like leave him there. Oh yeah. They certainly do. And even with like the, the the forged signatures, which is like the the grandfather's main scheme in the movie, um, they kind of find out about it and and you know don't really do anything about it. Like like they are the the, the grandfather is definitely presented as this like chaotic criminal <laughs> sort of bastard, and and uh-huh. the Beatles definitely like have no qualms about it. So he's often tempting them. In once again a very diabolical way, but yeah, they they are their mission in regards to him is usually not to keep him out of trouble, but to avoid having to keep him out of trouble, which I thought was yeah an odd choice, um, because it's just pretty blatantly an excuse to have the Three Stooges shenanigans happening. True, that was sort of my main complaint, like mm-hmm. like about the movie as a watcher is like, I wish all the like musical numbers were 30 seconds or less. So there was more time for right. three stooges shenanigans. Right. They talked about how they didn't want to do an exploitation film and how all these like low budget churned out things they didn't like, but like the way this movie is set up, the groundbreaking things about it feel sort of accidental in a way, or at least not. Um, there, there's definitely uh, an an element of being like we need to. It's like the wizard where they show the Mario footage at the end. It's like people are paying for this ticket just to hear <laughs> a couple new Beatles songs, so we have to right. play those in full. And then whatever happens in the middle, you know, Richard Lester, you can do whatever you want. Right. And I guess if anything, they lucked into having Richard Lester be the director. No, they should have had the first chapter or the first act of the film being them uh, running and then a song. Mm-hmm. And then the um the second one they should have jump- been like jumping. jumping yeah yeah and then they play a song and then they're popping and in the then, third act and then they're popping uh and then they play another song and then they're dropping yeah mm. agreed it opens with with you know the Beatles running from from the old adulating throngs that we love to talk about interestingly most of the shots in that opening sequence are like it's just John George and Ringo yeah. Because they they, they kind of get there with Paul and he's with his with his grandfather, but I think it's an interesting choice. I feel like there are a lot of moments in this movie where it's three of them for some reason, and I feel like that is sort of yeah. part of the effort to like sort of teach the audience there's four different people in this band. Yeah, <laughs> it's not just four of the same guy with the with the little German boy hair, which they commented on also. 
Well, somebody... Do you remember there's a bit about that? Yeah, at the press conference, multiple reporters asked multiple of the Beatles, so what do you call this haircut? You know, Do you True. think the haircut is here to stay? And they're just sort of like weirdly diffident about it without actually answering the question. It was really odd. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, the thing I thought of was, uh, as I was talking about the German boy haircut, was the the bit where Ringo does like the Nazi salute. Sorry, what? Yeah, there was. I wasn't. I wasn't sure. That's. I. I was like. I. I saw it. I was like, is that really what they're doing right now? <laughs> it's after he's been, uh, you know, manipulated by by Grandpa, and they're in the cafeteria with all these actors in different costumes, and he sort of does like the. He does like the the most famous Hitler phrase there is to the um to the one of the actors who's dressed in like a Nazi uniform or like a German soldier uniform. Because they're doing, like, Wagner or, like, whatever the fuck. Mm. Hmm. I don't know about that. <laughs> I feel a little odd about that one. <laughs> a bit peculiar, for sure. <laughs> well, epic German reference. Yeah, like from Germany. You know? You know the guy, like, from Germany? Mm-hmm. I heard of him. I like how the title card says, A Hard Day's Night, also starring Wilfred Bramble. Who the fuck is Wilfred Bramble? He's the old man. Oh. <laughs> He's old man McCartney. I forgot that instantaneously. There's also the two, um, like the Beatles managers. I remember one of them is named Shake. It's it's Shake and the other guy, Norm. Right. Uh huh. And they're sort of the uh, the straight men of the film. With the thing those two have got going on, I don't know about straight. Just kidding. They're the gay men of the film. Yeah, <laughs> they are. That they are. Which every film needs. Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah, C-3PO. C-3PO. Luke Skywalker. Star Wars. Star Wars. They get on the train, finally. They they evade the the throngs with this... Fun, this um, Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes shenanigans, as, as, as usual. Paul's in a disguise at one point. Um, some really exceptional filmmaking in those scenes, too. Just great camera work. Uh, and they see Paul's grandfather there... And uh, they're like, who's that? And Paul's like, he's my grandfather. And he's like, no, he's not. I met your grandfather. And he says, well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? A lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of that. A lot of aren't they, can't he, isn't he, you know? <laughs> that That's sort of the big Liverpool thing, I guess. Asking questions? Yeah. It struck me as a very Jewish kind of format of joke to be just filling, like, the whole scene with, actually. Yeah, yeah, there's a, cause, um, there's like, he can talk, can he? Of course he can. He's a human being, isn't he? Like, like, there's definitely sort of that back and forth for the whole scene. And he's very clean. He's a very clean old man. Extremely. I, I like the bit where, like, after he, like, cheats at the casino, they, like, one guy calls him dirty, and then the other one's like, I don't know, it seems pretty clean to me. <laughs> yeah, that was. I don't know what that was. It was really something. I don't know it was, what. <laughs> it was something, all right. They they get into all sorts of um, shenanigans with the with the other train passengers. Uh, you know, guy comes on, wants peace and quiet. They want to like play the radio. Paul's like, "We're a community, a majority vote of the workers, and all that stuff." And and the Beatles are just sort of like we're saying. There's there's sort of Bugs Bunny type. Uh, the laws of physics don't apply to them. There's the scene where, like, John's in the bathtub, and then Norm is looking for him, and suddenly he's not there, and he walks up behind him. Like, all, all that classic stuff. Right. Very cartoony. Yeah, and, and very well done. Yeah. 
it feels like, um, you know, it's the 60s, so it's kind of this transitional period where, like, you have old Hollywood uh, dying and new Hollywood struggling to be born. But this movie does feel like it's intentionally old school in the sense of, like, uh, it, it feels like a, like like a, one of the old comedies, you know? It feels like a, a, a silent movie with, with talking. Definitely. Who's the um the guy that they that did the train stunts? Buster Keaton. Yeah. They should have just they should have just instead of giving the Beatles dialogue, had them attempt um a bunch of train stunts. <laughs> you could have just had them do like jackass style. You could have had Buster Keaton in this. He was around. They should have just had him do do train stunts, and the the Beatles. They should have had prepared. Buster Keaton do train stunts and then play some Beatles songs. That <laughs> would have been bad for that. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's grandfather goes missing on the train. They're like running around looking for him. They find him with uh, a lady and then he gets locked up in the luggage car where they uh, sort of jam out. There's a line in here where Paul's like, anyway, it's your fault. And Ringo's like, why me? And Paul says, why not you? And I feel like that is definitely an iconic part of the Beatles that they just um, they they like to use Ringo as a punching bag. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe this movie is where that comes from. Some more gags about the Beatles being criminals. They get to the hotel finally. They like slip through one car to get to another car. They, they we get another kind of shitting on Ringo bit where like they bring in a bunch of fan mail and Ringo gets one thing and they say it's his nose. Um, but then he gets like a whole <laughs> a whole pile of fan mail. Right. And one of the things is an invitation to this gambling club. Ringo Club. <laughs> club Ringo. Uh, club, club Ringo. Ringo. There are very few... The Gambling Club is sort of the only set piece in the movie that's like... Well, well, there's the jail also. But there, right. there are very few set pieces in the movie that like... It's the only B-plot, kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, the cutting between like the Beatles out on the town at the dance clubs. And then and then Gramps sort of conning his way through the French casino. The, and, and, you know, the 60s dancing that we see in those clubs does involve a lot of uh, standing still. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of just sort of wiggling your arms and shaking and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Convulsing. Convulsing, indeed. Yeah. Undulating. Undulating? <laughs> uh, they go back to the hotel. They see the old waiter. Um... They, uh, they they just sort of have some light laughs at his expense and then leave without it. <laughs> they sure do. They sure fucking do. And the specific thing is that um, they run out at the notion of joining Paul's grandfather at an orgy. Right. <laughs> that gets them so excited that they forget about this, this naked old man they have right here. Truly a spiritually bankrupt film. <laughs> yeah, it's actually bankrupt uh, a group of guys for sure. Yeah, and then we have some of the guys we already talked about, where one person says that they that he's filthy rich, of course, and the other person says, "I oh, don't know, he seems pretty clean to me." Uh, the bit where they show up at the door and it's like, "Excuse me, sir, invited guests only," and then he sort of gestures to the Beatles behind him. And he's like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> and then after that scene, that the, and that's a really funny scene. It cuts to another German thing where John is in the tub, right. Doing the German accent. Doing his U-boat. That was very odd also. Yeah, we, we, we might want to start putting these pieces together in terms of how this movie is is giving us clues to the riddle. Um, Germany <laughs> is, is a big stepping stone there. Germany and war. 
Perhaps mm. something of the troubled conscience? Mm. Together with the devil on the shoulder that is the old man? The uh, uh-huh. old man is really the, uh, the, the, the representation of the Jungian shadow of the Beatles organization. Mm, the shadow of the vampire. There's really no, um, there's no angel on the shoulder, too. You know, like, they are sort of alone in the universe, and they only have each other to prevent this, this devil figure from, from destroying them. They have yeah. the managers. But the mm. managers, the managers aren't, aren't interested in them at all. The managers just want them to show up on time and they'll be mad at them either way. It, it's like a big thing in this movie. Like early on, they're like, oh, granddad likes to, you know, try and put people against each other. And then sure enough, oh. he convinces, he convinces Ringo that the Beatles don't cherish him. I would, um, put this on the back burner for, uh, in the future, another divisive figure might might appear mm. see oh i see what you're saying yeah <laughs> yeah i like the bit with the musical arranger where he like is he, he like thinks everyone's like conspiring against him yeah he's a funny character also there's a gag with leslie jackson and his 10 disappearing doves <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that was good he has to cross to cross it out right nine disappearing doves <laughs> And then there's there's another really funny thing where like Norm and Shake are kind of like they're they're trying to find the guys they're like chasing them and they're like we finally got them bringing them back to the dressing room they go up the stairs and then the then Ringo like opens a fire escape and they just leave <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then they just go frolicking in the garden <laughs> for a while they really yeah. do they frolic they are cavorting. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's where the almost goon-like quality comes in. I think. I think Goons it is. Notoriously love meadows. We know this to be true. It's interesting. There's there's the uh, can't buy me love in the film, and it's interesting because it was it was pretty recently that they were doing money. That's what I want, and now they're like, I don't care much for money. Money can't buy me love. <laughs> right. So, does that speak to, are they putting on a new front now, or has something sort of changed in them? The Beatles' anti-capitalist scheme. Again, I'm seeing guilt. That is an interesting, yeah. It it could be said that, you know, at this point, they've done the deed. By the time they're filming, Mm -hmm. they've done the, and they they wrote the songs in January, only like a a month and a half after they killed JFK. So, (laughs) it's entirely possible, and we... I don't know if we talked about this in the episode, but some of the stuff where on that first U.S. tour, they were refusing to do uh, segregated um, venues. Like, there could be a change of heart <laughs> that we're seeing at this point. Beatles civil rights era. There's the another sort of tangent where George gets mistaken for the the this this agency this fashion agency is looking for this american teenager who's going to pretend to be british for some kind of ad campaign right george focus group they think that's george and then he like you know shits on the whole campaign and then they're like is this a sign of shifting tides um there's actually a line here where um uh where, where george is like i don't care and the ad guy says the new thing is to care passionately and be right wing right so yeah there there, there are uh, a scant few political statements in this film and that's that is one yeah that, that that is one of them um 
So then Grandpa sneaks away. Uh, while he's sneaking around, he's getting all the Beatles to sign the picture. He's got, like, the pile of Beatles JPEGs with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, he sneaks away to the other room. He got the Beatles to all sign one of them, and now he's forging their signatures on all the other ones. Except he's just writing them in normal cursive. <laughs> it's just his own handwriting. It's his yeah. own signature, yeah. Uh, they all say John McCartney. Um, but he's he's doing it on this on this lift, and he pops up in the middle of the of the Wagner show, which I thought was a very funny moment visually. Actually, I really did enjoy that scene. It's pretty well done. I think one of the most like in terms of like groundbreaking filmmaking that this does. I think the way that Richard Lester combines the languages of film and television is like really well done. Yeah. And there's all this stuff like in, in like the musical number short, like either right before or right after this, there's the thing where like it like starts on a TV camera and then it pulls out to show like the band performing behind it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really cool stuff. There's there's more mischief, but they... This is another interesting thing, because they go on all these misadventures, and the authority figures can never find them, and they're like these... They, they have these supernatural powers, and they've always got these adulating throngs. But then, like, it always happens. At the end of the day, they get to set and are, like, instantly professional. Right. Plot armor. So it's another question of, like, is that propaganda... Is that is that something about how they want to portray the Beatles, or is it something that the Beatles are telling us for the riddle? For the riddle? Is, is this to say, like, the Beatles are hooligans, but, like, don't worry about them? Or is is the the fact that they're willing to be... I don't know. It, it sort of goes both ways, right? I think there's an effort to, to sort of scrub the Beatles' um, mm-hmm. uh criminal past so uh, okay. <laughs> move forward with their their new clean commercial image with their newfound mm. but very is, clean yeah very clean but so so um, so paul's paul's grandfather could be like an avatar for their past transgressions yeah it's but the, the, avatar. the thing is that they have to acknowledge you know their dirt their crime their goodishness uh mm-hmm. Or else it would, they, or else they would just c- come across as fake, right? So they're kind of mm-hmm. trivializing, um, they're trivializing their 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 evil side, um, and saying that at the end of the day, while the Beatles might be the uh, funny cavorting goons, they're also uh, professional. They're like the musicians that you should be into right now because they're also good guys or whatever. Mm-hmm. Unlike Paul's nasty grandfather. Yeah, who just can't restrain himself. <laughs> yeah, he can't help himself. There's there's a couple choice lines between John and Norm, where Norm says like, "John, behave yourself, or I'll murder you," and then he says like, "Leave him alone, Lennon, or I'll tell them all the truth about you." Yeah, uh- <laughs> this guy knows. So there's an implication there, and you could tie it back to even John's sort of. German bathtub party. <laughs> there's, uh-huh. there's an implication of something going on under the surface with John. Absolutely. This is what I was thinking. Like, really, you know, guilt. It's this 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 pervading sense of, you know, these boys have done something mm-hmm. that even their handlers know about and are threatening them with. 
Aha. Yeah, uh, let's keep that in mind. Let's. There's a good line where the grandfather calls them a bunch of powdered gigaws. Mm-hmm. And then he, oh. again, tries to turn Ringo against the other Beatles, says they're treating him cruelly, they're exploiting his good nature. Um, and he says specifically, quote, you could be out there betraying a rich American widow. Hmm. Yeah, that was very specific. <laughs> that was very specific. Um, could that be a reference to Jackie Kennedy? you could be out there she's definitely the rich american widow um ringo could be out there betraying her but instead he is doing something in her interest there was this really interesting section of the movie for a really long time ringo was like completely separate from the rest of the beatles Right, because that's sort of Grandpa's scheme, is to split Ringo off. To what again? To (laughs) To split him off. (laughs) To to get Ringo off of of the show. Oh, okay. (laughs) To split him off. Um, So it's true, there there is symbolism here of Ringo being uh, uh, at odds with the rest of the band. And that in the context of, you know, him choosing not to betray the rich American widow. Right. Mm, and perhaps the other Beatles did. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, These dastardly boys just keep dastarding worse. <laughs> they dastard it again. Um, and then Ringo does the, does the Nazi salute. He, like, passes by uh, one of them, and he's, like, running off, and then the the quote is, he filled his head with notions, seemingly, which I thought was pretty good. Um, Yeah. This is a good line. Ringo goes out to do photography, which is also interesting. Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. The the thing I think of is, what if Ringo (laughs) actually shot the Zapruder film? Oh my God. <laughs> I think you're on to something. The, the the rest of the Beatles betrayed the rich American widow by 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 killing JFK. Ringo chose not to by trying to document the crime, but his poor photography skills <laughs> prevented him from getting the other Beatles in the shot. <laughs> my God. The thing about the about Ringo in the film is that his loyalty is kind of ambiguous because he is the butt of the mm. joke to the Beatles. Um, and he does also seem to be the one who's most loyal to the music because at the beginning when they arrive at the, the TV set or the film set, um, he's the only one who, like, anyone ever mentions in relation to his instrument. Like, he's like, don't touch my drums. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he cares about his drums, right? Yeah, and, um, I mean, the manager's holding stuff over John's head. I feel like John's the one who shot, who fired at Kennedy. Oh, mm, okay. Okay, so we're sort of, we're talking about how they're trying to separate the Beatles' roles, but maybe in terms of the riddle, they're trying to separate what the Beatles' roles were in the assassination of of, of JFK. Precisely. So John fired, and Ringo perhaps took the the footage. John fired, but Ringo shot. Mm. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the other two were just dropping in the corner. 
Yeah, so we get this sequence where Ringo is uh, doing all this photography stuff, sort of having these weird encounters, and Grandpa is out on the street hawking Beatles JPEGs to the fans. The original NFT. So they end up both getting arrested. The the Grandpa gets arrested for hawking JPEGs, but... Ringo dropping get, JPEGs. Dropping, dropping hay kegs. The, but Ringo gets arrested <laughs> because he's, like, with this woman, and he, like, lays his jacket out for her, and she, like, falls into a pit. And then the cops come up, and they're like, you're dropping women into pits, and arrest him. <laughs> Which is a little Talmudic, by the way. Uh, yeah. Go on. Well, it's just this whole frame of, you know... If a beetle should should lay his coat over a pit, <laughs> is it a stumbling block to the blind if, if a woman falls into it? Right, yeah, yeah. And there's an interesting, like, they're, they're, they're ultimately kind of let go. Like, the cops don't actually intend to arrest him. So there's sort of this idea of, like, it's a, it's a machlokas. Yeah, I follow. I don't, but go on. They get there, and um, Ringo says, you've got to let me go, I'm Ringo. And the cop says, yeah, that's what they all say these days. <laughs> Which was, that was the real masterpiece of a line. That was a real good one, yeah. Uh, and then the grandfather says uh, of the cops, uh, well, first he says all coppers are villains. Right. ACAV. ACAV. And then he also says they're a desperate crew of drippings and their fists like matured hams. Which... It's a hard acronym. It was oddly pronounce. poetic. A, 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 a quote worth considering, yeah. A desperate crew of drippings and their fists like matured hands. <laughs> the jail sequence is is interesting. Agreed. The cops have like a racist line and the, the, the grandfather is like, all cops are villains, but then he's also like, um... He, he's saying that the cops really just want to let him go. They, they don't actually... You know, the, the, he, he's, like, blowing it out of proportion. So it's interesting right. to think about. In relation to the Beatles and their crime. Are they, is that another guilt thing where it's, like, they they feel, like, like the fact that they got away with it is weighing on them? Yeah, because um, their, their crime of murder, um, you know, to get ahead in the entertainment business and gain influence over the American public, uh, like, they've, they've produced like good things for the adulating throngs of teens but at the same time you know jfk is you know just a dead body in the corner now and True. um you know there's this there's this willingness to admit guilt but of course they don't want to be arrested Hmm. true another just just interesting little thing is that when the beatles run off to when they find out ringo's in jail and they run off to save him they like bark yeah yeah that just feels that was odd. That feels symbolic. I don't know what it's symbolic of, but it just feels like it. And we get another Money Can't Buy Me Love sequence as the Beatles are on the run from the police. If they killed JFK for the money, and they're running from the police, and they're talking about how they don't like money, we're getting somewhere. We're definitely getting somewhere. They run from the cops, they get to the venue, they put on the great performance. Uh, at some point in this movie, there's like an 11 year old, like, like, like Phil Collins was in this when he was like a, a, a very young kid. Oh, I don't know if it's that last sequence or another one, but I think it's that last sequence. He's like in the audience. Um, they have the performance end of the show. They run off to the Beatlecopter. 
uh, to head to another show. And there's this very kind of cyclical, again, this very sort of Looney Tunes idea of like, now they're going to go do the same thing again. Right. It's an escalation at the same time, because now they're on a, a private helicopter instead of the common man's train. True, true. And Paul, uh, gets gets his grandpa to toss his beetle jpegs out the window and leave them flying out for the for the general public what an ending it was what an ending it was um it's an interesting point though the fact that they start the movie you know they are sort of positioning themselves running from humanity you know, like 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 yeah. they're running from the masses, but then they they get onto this train as if they haven't fully, they can't fully get away yet until they get locked up in the in the luggage car. Like like being, if we think of this metaphorically, being arrested perhaps in Germany is what um you know that that's like the first thing that allows them to get away from these these masses that they're running from perhaps that's the moment where they're recruited by the the fbi or whoever um for for this this jfk plot and then when they actually when when they commit this next crime and they they run away and deliver this performance it's like now they have the they're in the full lap of luxury they can get into their private helicopter and they're tossing the, the these images of themselves these fabricated images of themselves out to the entire right. world yeah that's interesting yeah. very in each instance where they're performing music like first in the train car and then also in the tv station it's like they're repenting after some sort of a crime and um mm. they do a bunch of shit like they're running away from the law or like from other people but in the instance, in the instant that they're performing their music, it's like everything is okay now, and all the crime conflict is resolved, and so they're repenting by uh, right. playing music. So where does that put us? I don't know. Because <laughs> what we're saying is, uh, uh, this film, in the context of the Beatles, this is their, you know, this is really a personal statement uh, in a way that, you know, the music they put out now has been like, I mean, there's been some really overt stuff, like the, like when they closed out the album with money, that's what I want. But this is, you know, a, a more personal statement that they've been deli- able to deliver on their pop albums, mostly. Um, and it sees them sort of going through this sea change of, like, they were kind of gung-ho about it, like up to the point that they did it and then you you imagine paul and john in jamaica at the end having gotten away with the big the big crime and going like mm-hmm. what are we doing yeah because initially i think there's their scheme to kill jfk to gain influence over the american public is purely for for money and, and fame and success right mm-hmm. but they're starting to when the money and the fame and the success is, is a given in their lives, like what what else can they find value in? And I think that's um, they're trying to send a positive social message out with their uh, with their fame and influence. Mm-hmm. And so, what does the grandfather represent? What does the grandfather represent? Because we have come from uh, what, what's the uh, the song, Quarrymen. Yeah, that's just the Quarrymen song. So we've got Quarrymen old before our time, and now we've got an old man. 
So the connection here, I think, is um old. Old, old. yeah. Clean old man. <laughs> yeah. Because Cory Men would be dirty, right? Oh. Oh. The, the, huh. So... Again, we, we, we sort of touched on that idea of, of the grandfather being like an avatar for the young Beatles do on, on their German crime spree. And perhaps like mm. he's, he's sort of their dark passenger who <laughs> <laughs> literally who represents like that old side of themselves that just loves committing crime for the fun of it. Um, and now they find themselves in this big position where they feel this immense guilt for what they did. And again, the grandfather is sort of this devil on their shoulder who's like, we can, there's still more money to be made. There's still more fun to be had. We can still, you know, fuck with people and do more crimes. And so it is the statement of Paul convincing the granddad to throw the counterfeit Beatles JPEGs away evidence that at least in this moment they are trying to leave that past behind and start anew i think that this film is a statement that the beatles are on the cusp of realizing that they need something more spiritual yeah well it's the same month that this film comes out in america that the beatles meet bob dylan Mm. Mm. and bob dylan is the one who introduces them to cannabis drugs Really? Yeah. Only at that point? Uh, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I do find it hard to believe. Yeah, fucking rocking in Germany in the 50s, they weren't like... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But that is the that is the story. That is, in terms of the narrative of the riddle. I, or, or perhaps it's like, their music was not informed by drugs before this point. Right. And this is the point where they're they're starting to to you know think about things in a different way, think about how they can be more artistic, go down the road that this movie goes down in terms of like expanding art forms. Within a year of the Beatles meeting Bob Dylan, the Beatles are starting to like dress like Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is starting to dress like the Beatles. There's this real sort of cultural exchange that happens. It's possible that Bob Dylan just introduces them to better weed instead of the shitty German stems they're smoking yeah, before. It- introduce them to that that good shit yeah that good american shit so yeah i think uh we've gotten a lot of good clues out of this episode we see the beatles kind of racked with guilt about what they did and ringo maybe feels that they should atone for it while the the rest of the beatles are kind of trying to move beyond it but they end the movie united as a group for really, I mean, so much of the movie, we just see three of them at a time. So that feels symbolic, too. And it seems yes. like what what they want to do is put their criminal shenanigans, their goon-like, their almost goon-like qualities behind them and forge a new path forward. The thing is that the old man uh, is still there. True. He's, he's still with them like baggage, even. Like a dark passenger. Like a dark horse like he's coming at you like a dark horse yeah and he is and he is coming at on you. a train on a midnight train going anywhere so yeah do we have any sort of closing thoughts uh on this film anything else we want to throw into the gumbo that's like a good movie it's yeah a, it's a really good movie is the thing the, the thing is that like before this 
um, I was like, why the fuck are people so into the Beatles? And now I'm like, I get why people are into the Beatles. That's interesting, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, really redemptive. Is that a word? Sure, yeah. But I think, you know, we talked about how American audiences, American teens were being primed to throw themselves at the Beatles before they had even heard a Beatles song. And right. the, me- the like, final message of the film like they're united and they still have the grandpa with them but they're convincing him to like throw the the jpegs away that is perhaps on some level that is emblematic of the film itself which is them saying here's our new path we're not pop we're not here to you know throw cheap shit at you or cover other people's shit we're here to like do something original and work with like artists that we love and you know creative expansion yeah We'll see if it all holds true on the Beatles' next album, Beatles for Sale. Beatles for, for Sale. sale. <laughs> oh. Yo. They, they, they couldn't have just... It couldn't be that easy. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? We'll talk about it next time. I don't know, wouldn't it? Well, it, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. We'll talk about it next true. time. In our in our funny little Beatles mini series, uh, thank you guys once again for joining me. This has been a, a really great episode. Yeah, we're we're, we're in big strides here. I think. I, I think we're going oh, to enter in much like the Beatles. You know, their first couple albums are like whatever, and then they start to really hit like a creative stride. I think we're at that point <laughs> with this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, look forward to uh, uh, more expansive stuff from us as well and uh, and uh, clean conscience <laughs> on the next on the next episode. And thank you to everyone. Very clean. Thank you. to ev- Very clean. Thank you to everyone who's been listening as well. If, if you like this and you want more of this, um, you can <laughs> like or rate or sh- follow or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to it. It's on all the major uh, uh, audio places. And you can also share it with your friends. Let people know you like the show. That's one of the best things you can do. You can once again send us riddles at pulpfrictioncast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, on the next episode, uh, we might be doing a little blast from the past, and I won't say anything else. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree, Gary.